Welcome to the Cops and Writers Podcast. On this show, you will learn how to write the best crime-related novel or screenplay possible. Your host, Sergeant Patrick O'Donnell, worked the streets in one of the nation's largest police departments for over 25 years. Ride along with O'Donnell and his expert guests as they help you navigate the oftentimes confusing and misunderstood world of law enforcement. O'Donnell and his guests on this show do not represent any law enforcement agency. The content of this show is not meant to be legal advice. If you think you need a lawyer, you probably do. Hey, Cops and Riders. Thanks for being here with us today for another episode of the Cops and Riders podcast. I'm Patrick O'Donnell, and I will be your host for today's show. My first order of business is to thank those of you who are patrons of the show, most notably Francis Sheldrick, Kathleen Donnelly, Fran Cross, Gary Edgington, J.K. Doan, and Kathleen Kovacic. Your generosity helps pay for the software, equipment, and my time producing this show. Yes, you too can become a patron for less than a cup of coffee or a pint of Guinness. Just go over to patreon.com forward slash cops and writers, all one word. I would also like to thank all of you who have purchased my books in the Cops and Writers series available on Amazon. Hey, everybody, due to my holiday and travel schedule, I'm taking a break this week. This week's episode is a rebroadcast of my interview with the real Chicago PD, Lieutenant Richard Rybecki. This episode is one of my favorites and is also one of the most popular episodes to date on the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and had a good Thanksgiving. I'll be back next week with a whole new episode. Enjoy. On today's show, we will be diving into all things Chicago police with retired Detective Lieutenant Richard Rybecki. The good lieutenant served for over 29 years on the Chicago Police Department, where he worked as a patrol officer, tactical officer, gang crime specialist, detective, patrol sergeant, detective sergeant, patrol lieutenant, and Detective Lieutenant. His last assignment was as the Lieutenant Commanding Officer of the Area 3 Homicide, Sex, and Gang Crimes Units. Lieutenant Rybecki walks us through his long and distinguished career and gives us valuable insights into the Chicago Police Department. This includes lingo and culture exclusive to the Chicago PD. He also points out common mistakes writers make when crafting their crime stories that take place in Chicago. Be advised, this interview is longer than most that I have done, but I could have gone on for hours. This interview was so much fun. Lieutenant Rybecki is the real deal. He has literally been there and has done that. I think you guys are going to get a kick out of this episode. All this and more on today's episode of the Cops and Writers Podcast. Richard Rybecki, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure being there, Patrick. Oh, it's great to have you. Now, you're coming to us from the sunny state of Florida, correct? Yes, I am. Now, you're a Chicago... I'm uh, retired a long time now. Now, you are a Chicago native. Are you originally from Chicago? Yes, born and bred. Lived there my whole life in the city and uh, moved down here to Florida about 15 years ago. Before I go much further, just for context, it is August 10th of 2021 and unfortunately in the city of chicago last weekend two police officers were ambushed by some piece of shit cowards and one of the police officers is unfortunately dead and the other one is clinging to life and i just wanted to mention that that you know my heart goes out to their families and friends and when anything like this happens it shakes you to your core 
and the entire department feels it. Yes, absolutely. Uh, my heart was broken when I when I heard this. Uh, a 29-year-old police officer, she had only been on the job three years. Um, it was just horrible. Her, her partner, as I understand, he's going to lose an eye um, and maybe much, much worse. Now, the, uh, the officer that died, she uh, was unmarried and had no children. Um, but uh, again, the scammers started working right away. They set up GoFundMe pages for her and her two-month-old oh. newborn, which was a complete fabrication. Oh, that's unfortunate. Um, but the, the officer who's hospitalized, um, he does have a four-month-old, as I understand, oh. and is married. So we're praying for him. Yeah. Is like I said before, you know, I just it is heartbreaking and I there's no words that can you know we've gone through this before. No, you know, in the Milwaukee Police Department, we've gone through it tragically way too many times in the Chicago PD, same thing. And it's always just it's it's just as hard every time. And it just like I said, it's heartbreaking. So anyways, we'll go on from there. Um we're gonna start out with you, uh Rick as you yeah. like to be called. <laughs> yes, I uh, how did you start out with the Chicago PD? Like, how did it all start out for you? Oh, probably. Well, you know, I guess it's kind of a, a trope. Uh, my father was a police officer. I was going to ask and, you that. Yeah, and uh, and two of his brothers as well. Okay. Um, however, <laughs> uh, these were the days, you know, shortly after World War II when they all joined up. Uh, in the mm-hmm. police department because they needed a job and it was a job. Sure. And pretty much to those three, my dad and his two brothers, it was just a job to them. Like my dad was in uh, traffic division is almost his entire life. Uh, another uncle was a lockup keeper, you know, mm-hmm. um, a pretty safe job, <laughs> relatively safe. Relatively, and the yes. third was what we called the abandoned auto man. He just drove around the districts um, tagging cars to be towed. He was uh, the one who told me, he goes, you know, your father and your uncle and me, we've got to combine 90 years on the job, and you've done more in five than we did in that combined 90. <laughs> <laughs> so when you were a kid growing up, you're used to seeing dad and uncles in the uniform, you know, like getting yeah. ready for work, working all kinds of crazy hours, I'm sure. And what did your mom think? You know, did when did you like come to this epiphany of hey, I'm going to be a cop just like them? Um, it had less to do with my father and my uncles, I think. Maybe, maybe subconsciously it didn't. Maybe there was yeah. something there, but I kind of came to that that conclusion that that thought myself that I wanted to do this. Um, my father never encouraged me towards it. Neither did my uncles. Um, in fact, if anything, he'd rather see me become a doctor or a lawyer or something. I don't know when it took, kind of in high school, it's, I think, it, it seemed to um, come over me. There was another close friend of mine who, who really, this was what he wanted to do. And I think that influenced me probably more than my father and my uncle. Okay. And um, from you know, from high school, I went into to college and studied criminal justice. And uh, shortly after that, um, after turning uh, uh, 20, 22 years old, they gave uh, a police test for the Chicago Police Department. 
over 20,000 people took that test. Wow. Yeah. And um, two years later, they called me. So Wow. Well, let me back up a little bit. What did your mom think about all this? You know, she was worrying about your dad, and now she gets to worry about you. Yeah. You know, I have to say it's odd. My mom never talked about it, and I think that was her mindset. If I don't think about it, I don't have to worry about it. Yeah, maybe that's like a self-defense mechanism. And I know she was proud of me. She said so Mm -hmm. several times, but we never talked about what I did or things like that. Now, she may have talked to my wife about it, but they never let on. Okay. Did you? She did say one thing to my wife. Um, He gets a uniform allowance check twice a year. Make sure you see it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. He's not tucking it away in a secret fund. (laughs) That's funny. Yeah. You know, when I was in the police academy right before graduation, they had like wives and husbands and significant others come for like a family night. And one of the one of the good sergeants was like, just so you know, we do not have night court in Milwaukee. So if your <laughs> husband or wife is saying, I'm going to night court tonight, they're they're not telling you the truth. So <laughs> yeah. Along oh, the yeah. Same, we had one of those too. <laughs> along the same lines, you know, along the same lines. Oh, that's funny. So did you meet your wife before or after you were a police officer? Oh, before. Oh, okay. Before. In college? Yeah, we were we were college sweethearts. Okay. Um, and uh, married before I got on the police department. Oh, really? Um, okay. Yeah, but she was always very supportive. She knew this is what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And she had no problem with it. I don't know how many sleepless nights she ever had. I think sure. she was a lot happier when I got um, promoted to detective. Sure. She thought it'd be easier and less dangerous. <laughs> right, right. So <laughs> was she a teacher or a nurse? That seems uh, she to be the troll. Was she was a medical technologist. Medi- okay. Okay. Um, she's one of the ghouls that drew your blood. Yeah, phlebotomist. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, but um, she also ran the tests. Okay, so. gotcha. Yeah, it just seems like you know a lot of coppers, their wives or significant others, you know, were nurses or teachers. Oh, yeah. Or I mean, I mean it, it, it just seemed like a whole bunch. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Again, that's a uh, that's a trope you see in the movies and the yeah, the but. Television. But it's true. It is. It is. Not that's not the rule, but it definitely is uh, very common. I'll just say that. Yeah, you betcha. So you started with the Chicago PD. You went. You took the written test. You waited a couple of years. When did you take like um, the oral interview and the physical agility? Was all that still going on? Like for context, what year do you think that was about? Uh, 76, 75. The test was in 75. Okay. So the whole testing procedure went, as I recall, fairly quick. Um, but being Chicago with so many people taking the test, you know, the written test was basically nothing more than a reading test. Okay. Um, so there was a, well, maybe it's a conspiracy theory, but we all thought there was an effort to weed people out early, okay. early right. in the process. Sure. And one of the ways they did that um, was blood pressure. 
So when you'd go for a physical exam, there yeah. was no agility test. It was there just, wasn't. Wow. I know there is now. Yeah, there is now, but there wasn't then. Oh, okay. And um, so it was it's a real cursory physical exam. But okay. one of them was <laughs> check your blood pressure. So there were like lines of people going to these seven or eight people taking blood pressure. Yeah. And I get to mine and the guy says, you fail. Blood pressure's high. Go home. Oh. You're, you're not getting this job. I said, yeah. oh, no. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. And I asked Tim, I said, are you a doctor? And he's like, well, no, I, said, I want to see a doctor. I want a doctor to take my blood pressure. I don't trust you. And okay. I made a big stink. And so the doctor comes out of the back, checks my blood pressure. He's fine. Well, he knew what was going on. We don't want this guy causing any more problems. Oh, but then okay. immediately, like the whole line behind me is like, yeah, I want him taking my blood pressure too. <laughs> <laughs> but that was one of the ways. They weeded out a lot of people on blood pressure oh okay that's interesting so back when you took it you took the written test then the quote-unquote physical yeah and was was there an oral board like no not really? really no okay yeah it was it was um much easier back then yeah because now i know there's an oral board as well and the same thing in milwaukee yeah. you know but just for context sake again my uh both my parents are Irish immigrants and my dad wound up working at Hawthorne Melody Dairy in Chicago. Oh, I love that place. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's on yeah, Chicago. Chicago too, yeah. Yeah. That, no, that, yeah. The, he was down in Chicago at, working at Hawthorne Melody. Oh, okay. Yeah. He was, he's an Irish immigrant and that was his first job when he came to this country. And he's, you know, like 18, 19 years old and he's a young guy and the Chicago PD actually they had a bunch of off-duty coppers that would work security there. And they're like, hey, there's this Irish guy. You know, Irish guys make great cops. <laughs> so he actually got recruited, and they're like, yeah, he said, you'd be a great cop. He was this big farm kid. You know, and he, he was honest. He never got arrested, you know, nothing like that. And he was in good physical shape, and he was Irish. So, hey, you know, bonus, bonus. Take a job? No, my mom threw a fit. She's like, hell no. Yeah, you enjoy being a cop by yourself because I'm not going to be married to a Chicago cop. That's not going to happen. So that did not come to fruition. Dad made a career out of the dairy business. So he came real close. But yeah, that was the, you know, that was probably in 1961 or two, somewhere in that ballpark. That was how they recruited coppers. So times have changed, that's for sure. So you get on the department and back then I'm sure you had, you went through the Chicago police Academy. Is that correct? Yeah. There was uh, 10 weeks of in-classroom training. Um, and then you went out into the field with a training officer for a month. Then you'd come back for more classroom training then go back for a month. And this kind of went on for uh, about a year. Yeah. A year for, till you were off probation. Oh, wow. So you just kept on getting bounced back and forth. Yeah, the but the, the time in the field expanded from a month to, mm. to two months to four months right. before you come back for, for additional classes. And so, in the end, basically, it was just they're giving you like community college credit classes. Right. So this is like 1975, you said? 77. 77. Okay. So 77. What kind of equipment? did young officer Rybecki have <laughs> issued to him when he first got on the job? Well, we had two choices, Colt or Smith and Wesson revolvers. Okay. Uh, had had two chamber, a 38 round. 
So most everybody was getting a 357 revolver. Mm-hmm. Um, I went with the uh, Smith & Wesson Model 66, stainless steel, um, combat sights. Um, and the guys or girls with money went with the Python. The oh, Python. the Cole Python. My brother had one of those. I love that yeah. gun. Nice gun. Nice oh, gun. Oh, yeah. Yeah, those were the guys with money. <laughs> okay, yeah, <laughs> they they're not cheap. Because, because we were coming up out of our own pocket. Oh, uh, the so the, com- the PD did not furnish your weapon? Oh, no, no, they didn't furnish the weapon. That was oh, our. Wow. So, like, that's one of those things I see on TV where it's like, give me your gun and your badge. You know, and he slides the gun across the table to the lieutenant who was suspending him. Well, not in Chicago. You kept your own gun. Okay. Yeah, because that's your property. Unless it's yeah. used, unless you're using it, then it's evidence. So you don't have much of a choice. Yeah. But, uh, okay, so what all, What other pieces of equipment did you get? What did the uniform look like? Uh, well, as a recruit, you were in khakis. You didn't get the uniform. You had a you know, khaki shirt, khaki pants, mm-hmm. uniform shoes, a uniform gun belt, but it was empty holster. Walked around with yep. an empty holster. We did the same. You know, your, your handcuffs and, and pretty much that's it. Oh, uh, the baton. They issued you a baton. So it was the long and, wooden baton? Yeah. Long yeah. wooden nightstick yep. baton. Yeah. And, uh, and classes in how to use it properly, mm-hmm. which was not swinging it like a baseball bat. Right. You know, it's uh, it's the, the poking, you know, mm-hmm. the <laughs> jabbing and poking. Right. Which was much more effective. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. I don't want to be on the receiving end of one of those. That's no, for sure. No. You... And that's, a, that's about it. Yeah. We had to buy our own handcuffs. So basically what they <laughs> issued you... Okay. was the baton when it was time that you had a pistol um 12 rounds of ammunition um and a call box key <laughs> and when the time came of course your hat and your your rather your star and your hat shield now for those who may not know we had called i got issued a call box key too in 1995 when i was in the academy they don't issue those anymore no, <laughs> but um, could you explain what a call box is to those who do not know? Well, sure. Call boxes were um, big steel, usually cast iron boxes with a telephone in it. Uh, they were um, pretty much on every main corner uh, in the city where any police officer could open up that box with his uh, call box key and get connected directly to the closest district desk. And that's how you called in. Before they had handheld radios and there were a lot of foot posts, you had to check in. You'd have to go to the call box, open it up. Hey, here I am on my corner. Don't worry, I'm still here. And uh, the desk sergeant would know where you were. And that was the old days, though. That was that was even before me. But they still gave us call box keys. Yeah, you know, for us, we had the call boxes. They were starting to get phased out. They were still on the street. There were still call boxes out there. And, you know, it'd be like, call your lieutenant. You know, you'd be in a patrol car. It's like, call your lieutenant. And either you found a payphone, which usually a, pro- a prostitute or a, somebody <laughs> or a drug dealer was using. <laughs> and you didn't want to use that. So you'd find a call box. Now we had cell phones, but it was against the rules to be oh. talking on your cell phone while in uniform. Even though, you know, we did sneak our way around it. And and then they loosened it up to, okay, you can talk on your cell phone if it's official business. 
But what they didn't want was a bunch of cops driving around in cars with their phone attached to their head. Yeah, that that doesn't look very good. (laughs) So and there is a rumor that the beat men would keep maybe a fifth of whiskey or brandy in said call box. That was more than a rumor. I found several (laughs) empty bottles in call boxes. But the the bottles were all empty. So if (laughs) you're writing put them there. (laughs) I don't know, but if you're writing a story about a big city police department (laughs) with call boxes, sometimes there were things kept in there that maybe shouldn't have, but you know. On those cold Wisconsin or Chicago nights, you know, if you're walking that beat. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you know, did they give you speed loaders for your ammunition or no, was it just loose? No. You just had you the ammo pouches? Loaders, you had to buy your own. And, and basically, the ammo pouch you had was a dump pouch, okay. which basically for your listeners means six rounds lined up in a straight line, and it was attached to your belt. And when you unsnapped it, it would dump that in a downward trajectory so you could have your hand underneath it and get the the rounds out quickly, which wasn't really quick. <laughs> no, not even close. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> dang. So as far as training goes with firearms and, okay, yeah. let's go with firearms. What did that look like when you're a recruit? What kind of, how did the training look? What did the training look like? It was good. We had a relatively new building, um, I think there was only a class or two ahead of me in our new academy building. It was brand new. Oh, okay. I went through it. So they had a wonderful indoor range, a great, great range. And, uh, you know, we all look forward to that every day. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Let's let's get down to the range. (laughs) Um, um, But there was a problem, I guess, they found out with the ventilation. Mm. uh, And their uh, firearms instructors we're all coming down with lead poisoning. Oh God. Okay. Yeah. And so they, they, until they could get it fixed, they moved us to shooting air pistols. Oh, <laughs> just, just ridiculous. You know, and, yeah. and wow. Everybody was a great chat with an air pistol. I'm sure they were. Yes. Or they should be, <laughs> but, uh, but they cleared that up and, and, uh, um, yeah, we went right back to, to regular old firearms training, now, which did you- was, did you Pretty wear seven yards, okay. 10 yards, 15 yards, 20 yards, um, uh, uh, six rounds in each and then do it again. And now did every you... once in a while we had the shotgun training. Okay. That now, was... did you have hearing protection or eye protection? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, both. you did. Good. Yeah, we did. Okay. Yeah. Oh, well, I know it was the dark ages, but we had it. Even oh, like <laughs> okay. Because I, you know, a couple of my sergeants, you know, we're very hard of hearing. And those were the guys that have been around forever. And they're like, yeah, when we did firearms, we didn't have hearing protection. And I'm yeah. like, how can you hear it all then? And the siren was on top of the light bar of the squad car. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you got the siren, you know, the firearms training, cause you have to go back X amount of times a year and qualify. So, you know, you're around that all the time. And then you said that you did uh, shotgun training too, I assume. Yeah. The, yeah. The 12 gauge pump action. Yeah. And here was the cool part. Um, on, on the lakefront in Lincoln Park, there was a gun club. Um, shotguns only, but you would shoot out over the lake, shoot skeet over the lake. And they oh, took wow. us out there for our first shotgun training. So we were shooting skeet over the lake. That was fun. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. We did nothing like that when I was yeah. in the academy. Uh, then 
not too long after that, they closed down that gun club. And again, one of the reasons they used was uh, too much lead going into the lake. Oh, sure. I can see that. Now, what was the um, load that you would have in your shotguns when you were on patrol? Uh, it was a double lot uh, buck? Uh, double lot, yeah. Double lot okay. buck in the shotguns. But we were not allowed to carry them in the car. What? We could not have shotguns in the car. Yes, that comes from um, uh, I'm, I'm, I don't want to sound bad here, but it was Jesse Jackson who started okay. a movement uh, to get the shotguns out of the car because they were too intimidating. Wow. And it worked. And by the time I came on the job, they were not carrying shotguns in the car any longer. Wow. A big city police department like Chicago with as many homicides and gun violence as you have. You know, I remember my firearms instructor is like, if you get a gun call, that shotgun better be out. You don't take a a pistol to a gunfight. You take a shotgun to a gunfight. We couldn't check out a shotgun unless you had the watch commander's approval. (sighs) Wow. Is Is it still like that today? Uh, I don't know. Um, I haven't asked anybody recently. Okay. Um, I would assume it is. Wow. Because, yeah. like, we have shotguns in every squad, and if you're trained in patrol rifles, you know, they're M4s, M4 carbines. Yeah. And uh, I was lucky enough to get that training. That was probably the most fun I had getting paid. Yeah, it was a three-day, <laughs> uh, no, four-day course, and we went through over a 1,000 rounds. Yeah. They're paying you to shoot and ammunition. Oh, oh, and you're playing reindeer games. You know, you're running around. It was very, very physical. So people who were in really poor shape strayed away from it because they couldn't do it. Yeah. And what they wanted you to do was get your heart rate up, which made sense. Trying to make it as realistic as possible, because if you're in a firefight, yeah, your heart rate is going to be through the ceiling. yeah. Or you're going to be chasing somebody, et cetera. So there was there was running involved and a ton of transition um, shooting, which means there are certain situations where a rifle just isn't practical and you transition to your pistol. Or if, say, you have a malfunction, you know, then you just sling the rifle and go to your pistol. So we shot like three, 400 rounds of pistol ammo. Wow. It was, well, like I said, that was... I, a lot of fun. There were <laughs> well-earned blisters that I had on my fingers from that. It, it was really a good time. So... Back then, also, I'm going to guess that you were not issued a vest. Or were no, you? no, no. Vests didn't come to us till when they made it mandatory. Let me think. Late 80s, early 90s. It took that long. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. They'd encourage you to have a vest. Oh, yeah, you should have a vest. But nothing. Um, well, see, one of the things, too, was with the vests. And any piece of equipment is that our bargaining unit um, had it in the contract that if they change any uniform standards or equipment, city's got to purchase first one. Okay. So the city, if they were going to make it mandatory for us to wear vests, they had to buy us the first one. Oh, okay. And they eventually did. So, um, but I think a lot of it was also raised through charity. So, mm. <laughs> so the city was running a charity say hey what's my best for the all the coppers and then they were giving us to us as the first issue okay yeah i i remember the difference between the first vest that i got in 95 you know you wore it under your shirt you wore it over your t-shirt and it was yeah. a white cotton t-shirt back then 
and it was heavy and bulky, almost no give to it. It was very, very uncomfortable. Yeah. You know, I but, remember those. Yeah, but they got better with time. You know, I think I went through four vests and each vest got a little bit better. And then towards the end of my career, they had exterior vests. You could, they had exterior vest carriers yeah. that you could get, which made a lot of sense. And all the young guys got them. Yeah. And I was like, you know what? I've been wearing a vest under my shirt for 25 years. I'm not going to change now. Yeah, I, I see pictures from the city now, from Chicago now, and um, they're all wearing the exterior vest. Yeah. I have. And it's an approved piece of uniform now. Right. And it makes so a ton of sense. Exterior. When you go inside the district to do paperwork or whatever, you can un- unflip yeah. the, the folds or just take it off completely and be a lot more comfortable. So oh, yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And yeah. So that was your equipment. Did you have handheld radios back then or what that look like? Uh, yeah, we did. When I came on the job, we did, but, um, oh man, like first generation, maybe so you know, the bricks long cord and the thing was as big as a, and weighed as much as a house brick. You know, they were, uh, they were, they were tough and only one per team. So when we were on the street, when, me and my FTO or the partner on the street, one guy drove, one guy had the radio. Oh. But of course, when you're a new recruit, the FTO is driving and he's got the radio. Because <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't trust you yet. <laughs> no, no. Kid, keep your hands off all this equipment. You know, yeah, keep your hands off the radio. <laughs> you're right. Don't touch anything. Don't touch anything. I heard that more than one time. And I'm like, all right, I'll just sit here and do whatever I'm supposed to do. <laughs> so you go through your um your training your field training you get through probation what was your first assignment we'll be right back today's episode is sponsored by the thrilling audiobook avenging adam book one in the fbi canine thriller series written by author jody burnett sparks fly between hotshot fbi agent rick sanchez and no-nonsense fbi canine handler kendra dean as they chase a ruthless serial killer Witness an electrifying blend of suspense, romance, and redemption, where internal conflicts challenge our heroes as much as their target does. Will they catch the killer before it's too late? Grab Avenging Adam now. It's more than a story. It's an experience. Get 50% off the Avenging Adam audiobook at jody-burnett.com forward slash cops and writers. Patrol, obviously, um, and that was in the 19th district on the north side. Okay, now I'm going to segue here for a second okay in chicago we have districts not yeah i was gonna ask you about that yes we have districts not precincts and that's one of the things that's really going to tick off chicago cops in writing if you call them precincts (laughs) they are districts when i came on the job we had 25 police districts it's down to 22 now okay um but call them call them districts and precinct came from the old aldermanic precincts in the city where every Aldermanic precinct pretty much had its own police station, and the alderman was picking the boss in the police department. Really? Oh, yeah. wow. And, you know, with all the old stories of corruption in the city and politics linked to it, that's why they changed it. I'll be darned. And we went to districts instead of precincts. Wow. That's very, very interesting. Okay. Yeah. Same in Milwaukee. They're district stations. So, yeah. They're. It seems like precinct is very East Coast. Yeah. You know, yeah. That, that's very uh, East Coast-ish. 
And as far as, you know, you got out, did you have a choice of where to go or they just, no, absolutely not. Um, they generally kind tried since Chicago. So, so big geographically, they tried to keep you, if you were a North side or they put, kept you on the North side, if you were a South side or they kept you on the South side, you weren't, you weren't traveling. Um, so yeah, they kept us on the North side. Um, and it was, as a matter of fact, I started my career in that building and I ended my career in that same building. Okay. Um, because it was an area headquarters at the time, mm. which again, now the city is divided up into five geographical areas. It used to be six when I got in the job. We had six areas and each area was a headquarters for the detective division um, and other units and the area encompassed several districts. So in an area, you might have four other districts that operated under the guise of an area chief. Oh, okay. So like in Milwaukee, you know, we had seven police districts, you know, it was a, it's a city of 600,000. And when I started, we had about 2000 sworn. Now we're down to, I think 1400. So, you know, Mm -hmm. it's a lot smaller than chicago but you it was almost little police departments within the police department huh yeah basically yeah um i have a friend who was in suburban police officer mm-hmm. uh just outside the city of chicago and in a small place like that if you take off the wrong boss your career is screwed <laughs> you're, you're done for right but the nice thing in chicago is if you ticked off your district commander or the area chief, you could always transfer and go somewhere else. Yeah. Within the city. Yeah. Same um, thing so with that Milwaukee. Yes. Yes. <laughs> but your reputation, you know, this reputation. Oh, yes, it oh, does. Right. And many times it's deserving. There is no doubt about oh, yeah. that. Without a doubt. So when we're talking about this, what is the rank structure for people who are writing books or stories about the Chicago PD? What is the rank structure? Yeah, it's, um, well, obviously, there's a uh, first. You're going to start with a probationary police officer. He's the lowest on the rung, lower than whale doo doo, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and above that is the sworn police officer. And now they have, I I don't. It's not a rank per se, um, but they get a little patch on their arm and they get a little extra pay. A field training officer. He's mm. the like the next step up. Okay. And then also on par with the patrolmen are detectives. They are the same rank as, as a patrolman. There is, okay. there is no difference other than job title assignment. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's the only difference in rank. There is no rank difference. It's just pay difference and title difference. Um, then above that is a sergeant. And above him, the lieutenant, then a captain. And then above the captain are commanders. Anything above a captain is what we call exempt uh, personnel, meaning you don't have to test any longer. It's appointed. Mm-hmm. It's it's just appointed by the superintendent. Um, so you have a commander, then you would have a deputy chief, then a chief, then a deputy superintendent, different levels of deputy superintendents, and then the superintendent. We're a very top-heavy police department. Okay. Interesting. Now, you know, you were talking about detectives. You know, people 
often have a misnomer when it comes to detectives that, you know, on TV shows and movies, you know, you go to a crime scene and it's nothing but detectives and maybe one cop, you know, it's usually oh, that's no. not the way it works. Oh, no. <laughs> There's more, somebody's got to take the assignments, you know, the yeah, calls for more, you know, much more, many more uniforms than, than yes. detectives at a scene. Right. And there's some departments that actually being a detective is a lateral move. It's not a promotion right. where, you know, it's like, okay, you're, you're now an investigator. You know, there's two different, like, well, three different branches when it comes to a police department. I think it's the same as Chicago. You have patrol. You could stay in patrol through your whole career. You know, you start out as a copper, sergeant, lieutenant, captain, you know, whatever. And that's on the patrol side of the house or after you do your time in patrol as a copper, then you can test or get appointed to becoming a detective. And then from there, there isn't cross pollination. Now, is that the way it is in um, Chicago? There's a whole lot of cross pollination okay. in Chicago. Tell us about and, it. Um, you have to test for detective, even though it's basically a lateral move, you still have to test for detective. Okay. Um, and once once you make detective, um, you're you're there. It's not easy getting rid of a detective who's not doing who's not carrying his weight. Okay. You're you're pretty much there. Um, but once you get promoted beyond detective to say sergeant, the Chicago Police Department likes reminding you where you came from. They will send you back to patrol, unless of course you have a phone call, which which means. <laughs> You phone a friend. But I don't know. I've never heard of any detective who got promoted to sergeant who stayed in the detective immediately after. You're, you're going to get sent back to patrol, as I did. Once I made sergeant, as a detective, I made sergeant. I got sent back to patrol. And it's good. It, it makes sense to me um, because you learn that job. Mm-hmm. You as a sergeant, you learn that job at patrol. You you know what you learn what the requirements are as a first line supervisor. Um, and when you if you get back to the tech division, you have a better understanding of that supervisor's job and what he needs. Um, so it's easier for you to help because basically the tech division, not all other specialty units, are support groups for patrol. Sure. They're, they're, they're basically support for patrol. And um, so, yeah. And then again, when I, I did make sergeant and went back to patrol, then I was moved back to the tech division as a sergeant. When I made lieutenant, I got sent back to patrol again. <laughs> okay. And yeah, served as a watch commander, um, the rush street lieutenant, which is a whole other world. Uh, if you want to, I'll get get into that. <laughs> but but once I made, once I left there, and I got back to the tech division as a lieutenant, it was pretty much I'm there now. I knew I was going to end my career right there. Okay. But you don't. Once you get into the tech division, like in New York, you stay there. You promote up through the ranks mm. there. And I don't know if it's that way in L.A. I don't think it is. I think you do get promoted up like there. Their grade, their detective grade three is equivalent to a sergeant. Right. So, um, so I don't know if they if they actually made sergeant, would they go back to patrol? I don't know. If that's yeah, for us, I, I like I liked it. 
Yeah, I you know, hated it, but I liked it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, like in Milwaukee, the way they did it for years was if you went over to the detective side, that's where you stayed. You know, like you said, nobody ever went back. And we didn't have sergeants. You went from detective all the way up to lieutenant in a promotion. And unfortunately, you'd have lieutenants that were never supervisors. Yeah. And I mean, they knew the job of detective there. They knew all the nuts and bolts of investigations, you know, in how to run a scene and, you know, what to how to allocate the resources, et cetera, et cetera. Some were better than others, obviously. That's with any job. But when it came to personnel issues, they were kind of, I didn't want to say lost, but you could see there was a deficiency there. And also you had lieutenants that, okay, their detectives almost never fired a gun, you know, at work. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, so it's like, how do I fill out that form? Or very rarely, unless you're doing gangs or some kind of specialty unit, you know, a suit and tie detective isn't going to be using force. They're not doing a whole lot of fighting with people. You know, everything's done and over with by the time they get there. But once in a blue moon, something would pop up and the lieutenant would be like, I have them come up to me and said, I have to fill out a use of force report. I've never done one of those, you know, in, or a squad accident, you know, just nuts and bolts stuff that goes every day and they just look like lost puppies you know i was like i've never done any of this you know or hey sarge yeah. could you do that for me and uh, i'm like sure no they big deal reverse kind of happened to us too because um to be a sergeant or a lieutenant in the detective division it wasn't necessary for you to have been a detective sometime in your career so we were getting sergeants in who had never been detectives before and didn't know the job right we were getting lieutenants in who had never been a, a detective or even a detective sergeant before and didn't know what the detectives really did. Right. So the detectives hate that. You know, uh, when they've got a sergeant here telling them what to do who's never been a detective before, and they really resented it. And, you know, it's fair to some degree, but it's also unfair to another. Yeah. Um, we went through the same thing. We had a new chief that is like, okay, this is not cool. You have to become a sergeant before you become a lieutenant, which means you're going to have to go back to patrol, like just like what you were saying. But you had, say, a lieutenant. He, he was cross-pollinating. We had bureau lieutenants going over to patrol. Then we had patrol lieutenants and sergeants going over to the bureau. And neither of them did the job. And either you had a boss that's like hey you know what you know i was in patrol my entire career and it's like yeah it's been 20 years since i've been in patrol you know yeah. can you help me out a little bit here you know it's like absolutely you now know that's a good boss that now that's a fantastic boss yeah. or you had the ones who were trying so hard to look good and yeah. you know that's they were they were messing stuff up left and right yeah. if all they had to do was just hey just very quietly off to the side and say, Hey, Sarge, you know, yeah. how does this work? And it's the same thing. I had friends that went over to the detective bureau and obviously they're cops. They know what an investigation is, but they didn't know the nuts and bolts of what, you know, the bureau did on a daily basis. And they were humble enough to say, Hey, you know what? You know, I got to learn this stuff. And those detectives, you know, respected them, you know, yeah. for the Absolutely. most part. Yeah. And I learned that very early in my career. That if you didn't know something, don't be afraid to ask. There's always somebody willing to help you. 
Yes. Um, and no one's going to fault you for asking to want to get it right. They're going to fault you for screwing up or not asking. <laughs> yep. For ruining their day. Nobody as wants that. As a, as a supervisor, I, I learned, always ask, always ask. If I've told Patron, you know what? I don't know that answer that you're asking me to the question that you're asking me, but let's go look it up by ourselves together. Let's go right. we'll find out because I want to know now too. Sure. So, and okay. that's that's the way that patrolman's going to respect you more. If, if you're admitted to them, I don't know. You can't know everything. There's no way you could know everything. No, God, no. So, Lord, no. So I think, yeah, you garner respect that way. Now, of course, you're going to get the app patrolman that says, hey, look at that jerk. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Right. But but the majority of people are going to respect that and understand that you can't know everything. Absolutely. Now, in your personal career, you were a police officer, then you went over to detective, then you went sergeant and lieutenant, and you're retired as a lieutenant, correct? Yes, that's correct. Now, which uh, divisions did you work in, as, or did they call them divisions, like, say, you know, homicide, se- sensitive crimes, like sex crimes, that kind of thing? Um, I spent one month, well, when I first made detective, you had two entities within uh, an area headquarters, an area detective division. Yeah. Well, actually, three. Let me take that back. There were three. You had property crimes, violent crimes, and youth division, okay. which was part of the detective division. Now, downtown in the Ivory Tower, that's where Auto Theft Unit was um, centered. And uh, later on, when they started a cold case squad, that's where they were at. Um, auto Theft and Arson were down there. Along with some cold things. But in the areas, you had violent crimes, property crimes, youth. As time went on, they changed youth to SVU, Special Victims Unit. Mm-hmm. Um, and they handled missing cases, all the youth division cases. Um, but uh, like I said, violent crimes, property crimes. And in violent crimes, we handled homicides, aggravated batteries, um, uh, police involved shootings, uh, assaults. Uh, any any type of violent crime, yeah, or in property crimes. Well, also in violent crimes, they handled robbery. So in property crimes, they pretty much did burglary and theft, right, and uh, fraud. Hey. As, as time went on, they sent robbery over to the property crime side. Really interesting. Yeah. So, um, you know, every time you get a new superintendent, they like shaking things up. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and they, they, they changed things. And um, after I retired, they got a couple of guys in from outside the city. One was from New York. And um, so they instituted a lot of policies that they thought were successful in those venues. And sometimes it translates well, sometimes it doesn't. And um, they really messed with the detective division. We went from five. Now, this was after I was gone. So it's mm-hmm. just I'm getting this from people I talked to. Um, we went from uh, six areas down to five areas and then down to three areas. So they had a north side detective division, south side detective division, and central. Okay. And now it's back to five again. So they, they're, you know, they like juggling. <laughs> yeah, they like to try and fix things that aren't broken, don't they? Yeah, yeah. All right, so you went from there and you camped out it, when towards the end of your career or the middle or wherever as a lieutenant, which um, branch of the detective bureau did you uh, 
supervise? Um, well, as I said, uh, or I was going to say, I started when I made detective, I spent one month in property crimes. Mm-hmm. I hated that. I, I always wanted oh, sure. violent crimes. I, yep. You know, I wanted to work on the side. That's, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to learn it. I wanted to see if I had the aptitude for it. Sure. So um, I did transfer out and eventually wound up back in violent crimes. But in violent crimes, as a new detective, you're not working homicides. <laughs> They're giving you the simple batteries and a couple of aggravated batteries, you know, the, the old uh, herd shot felt pain, you know, kind of cases um, where, where there were a thousand witnesses, but nobody saw anything. Yeah, I was just walking down the street, minding my yeah, own business, yeah. and I got shot. Oh, I don't know how that happened. We had a double homicide in the tavern once. The place was packed. Must have been 300 people in there. They were all in the bathroom. Yes. Every yes. single one of them was in the bathroom. Except Those the are big guys. bathrooms, yes. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, you start out you start out small, you know, and they don't even hook you up with that regular of a partner. You're kind of on your own. You get your daily handouts, and when we say handouts, what we mean is every day from the case management, they've got, you know, unnamed defenders or all these cases of uh, Heard shot, felt pain, these aggravated batteries, uh, simple batteries, assault cases, and you would get the follow-up on it. You had There had to be a follow-up on every case. Okay. So you got to do that. And you kind of learned over time. You got your you, you got your feet wet. And then over time, they, they hooked you up with more regular partners. And you started working um, the real violent crimes, you know, the real mysteries. <laughs> sure. But in my first assignment at Area 4, which is on the west side of the city, um, I like to say it was more like a mash unit of detective division. <laughs> okay. Meaning we just moved from homicide scene to homicide scene to homicide scene to homicide scene with not a lot of time to work the cases in between. I think in our worst year in our area, we had 200 homicides. And that's, don't forget, this is only one-fifth of the city. Wow. 100 homicides in that for 30 detectives. So you've got a pretty heavy caseload. And right. most of these homicides are gang-related, drug-related. Oh, sure. Um, Somebody and, was doing something illegal when they yeah, got killed. Yeah. You, they were in not, the middle of something illegal. Yeah. And that's it's usually not the person. Now there's exceptions to every rule. It's usually not the person walking down the street, minding their own business or watching TV. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, stray bullets do find their ways into homes where you have a hardworking, decent person yeah. that just wants to watch TV and they get rewarded with a bullet in the chest. You know, that kind of thing. But the overwhelming majority are not that. No, the overwhelming majority. No, I can remember. I can count on one hand the, the number of interesting homicides I, maybe that's the wrong word. I shouldn't say interesting, but but it, yeah, involved homicides. Yes, plotted homicides. Right, you know. like what you see on TV. You know, yeah, like the big. Yeah. You know, most yeah. and where I worked, I'm sure where you worked as well. You know, alcohol has a lot to do with it. You know, follow. Yeah. You know, yeah. revenge, lust, uh, money. You know, <laughs> anger. Mix it in with booze and you, some drugs, and there you go. You've just ran down in area four. We had uh, a list of reasons for homicide. Um, one of them was dope. Yep. Um, the next one was your mama, which is 
dope encompasses everything. Dope is anything related to some monetary system. You know, mm -hmm. it's money, it's dope, it's guns can be used as as currency. Oh, sure. And uh, then there's your mama, which is just a you know regular old insult, yep. just some kind of insult. Um, then there was uh, a couple others I, I forget them, but the last one was old boy just went off, and that's the one yep. you can't explain. Just the All crazy right. guy that just went off. Yes, you know, basically you you just described the same thing. Every city has got this where these murders are just senseless. Yes, senseless. I mean, I had people get killed over the last chick, the last drumstick. I've had yeah. people killed over the last beer. Poker games gone bad. Yeah. Uh, you know, rolling dice, you know, thinking that somebody is cheating, you know, yeah. any kind of gambling thing or looking at, you know, my girl wrong or brushing up against her on yeah. the dance floor. I mean, these are I'm not making any of this up. These are actual homicides that I've been involved in. Yeah. Mom loves me more than you. <laughs> That was a homicide. I have never had that one. Yeah. Oh, my Lord. Oh, but anyways, speaking of homicide, so say you're the homicide detective. After you kind of earned your wings in violent crimes, now they're trusting you with homicides. But how long does it take for that to happen? Or is it situational? Some people catch on years. quicker than others. Um, well, where I'm at, a little quicker because of okay. the volume of homicides. You know, sure. They kind of moved you along good. And okay. it would put you with a much more experienced uh, detective who was had been working homicides for quite some time and that was my first partner the guy that really broke me in on homicides and he was good he was really good taught me a lot when you were in homicide did you have a regular partner yeah for about okay. for about um let's call it semi-regular okay i worked with this guy for a year and a half maybe two years mm -hmm. and then he moved on he went to a fbi task force oh. and um then i you kind of bounce around a little bit with uh, other detectives. You know, one guy's got a day off, so you're working with his partner, or another guy's on furlough vacation. Sure. And, uh, so you're working with him for a month, and then you wind up hooking up with somebody else again. You know, the sergeants really wanted us to have steady partners. I don't know why it made it easier for them somehow. <laughs> That's the only reason. But they always wanted us to have a steady partner. Sure. And my last partner in working homicides as a detective, um, he was actually the reason I, I made sergeant. I didn't want to be a sergeant. I was happy being a detective. Mm -hmm. um, but he kind of prodded me and pushed me. He was ambitious. Um, he was very good, but he was ambitious. And uh, we took the sergeant's test together and made sergeant together. Mm. Um, he went on to become the chief of detectives by the time he retired. Wow. Good for him. Yeah. He was very good. Yeah. Now, as far as a, you were a lieutenant, what was your responsibilities in the bureau as a lieutenant? What well, did they well, tell me my yeah. responsibilities were, or what did I? <laughs> what you actually do? What did I believe my? Yeah, yeah, maybe a little bit of both. Okay, I'll give you what I believed my responsibilities were. My responsibilities was to keep every other boss away from my detectives so they could do their job. That that's it. Stop micromanaging. That was a big thing back then. Uh, probably still is. And I wanted to keep my my commander away. I wanted to keep his bosses away, keep them all away from my detectives and just let them do the job. And I'd often tell my sergeants too, let them work. I mean, know what they're doing. I, mm -hmm. I, I don't want you just giving free reign, know what they're doing, right. but just let them work. 
Let mm-hmm. them do what they do because most detectives are self-motivated. Sure. You know, it's not, they're not doing, some are doing it for the overtime because there's a lot of overtime involved, but most of them, they're self-motivated. They want to catch that bad guy Absolutely. and they want to catch the right bad guy. Correct. So, so, so uh, what did like a typical day look like? Were you in the field? Were you in the office? How did that look? I was in the office and I can, I can say this and I said it back then. I hated that job. Um, I found out as, as I loved the job of detective. I loved being a sergeant. I hated being a lieutenant because it's mostly administrative. You're shuffling mm-hmm. paperwork all day long and you're, you're running interference um, for your sergeants and your detectives. Um, like I said, keeping the other sure. bosses away. And so I'm in my, my boss's, my commander's office every day. Uh, um, the other time I'm behind the desk doing work. Um, what I consider to be nearly useless work. You're just shuffling paper, moving it up, moving it down the line. And I hated that job. Um, the best times I had at that job were when we were short staffed and actually I kind of jumped into some investigations and helped out. That's, okay. that's when I loved that job. Not the yep. other time. Yeah. A common thing you see on TV is in y'all like say New York or Chicago, you have the lieutenant and sometimes even like the captain, like questioning prisoners and stuff. And I'm like, no, oh, no. they're, they're <laughs> way too busy. You know, like you said, they're buried in admin stuff. You know, it's like, you know, they're kicking down doors or in foot chases. Yeah. And, it's like, and it's like, no, no that just no, does not no. happen. You know, a lieutenant does not do any of that. <laughs> you know, where I worked, the lieutenants took turns as far as going out on the street. This is before sergeants were introduced into the mix. So say you had the homicide and there'd be a team of detectives, like say five or six detectives, depending on how, you know, the circumstance, you know, if there was a bunch of witnesses, it was a complicated scene, you would have detectives show up. Obviously the coppers would be first in a patrol sergeant. And then the detectives would show up and the detective lieutenant, if it was during the day, a captain might show up, especially if it was like a high profile mm-hmm. thing. And, you know, they would take turns as far as who could go out in the field, because you could only sit behind that desk for so long answering the freaking yeah. phone. It drove well, you if, banana cakes. If I was in the office and a homicide came in, I'm going to the scene. Okay. That, that was my plus. I, I'm going to the scene. Now, I'm not going to tell my sergeants or my detectives what to do because they know what to do. But I want to be there in case they need me to do something. I want to be there in case some other boss shows up. Sure. So I can walk them away. <laughs> yeah. You know, it is it is amusing. You know, you when you have a bunch of reps, unfortunately, you know, when there is a lot of homicides in a big city, and that's big city pretty much anywhere in the United States, some more than others, you know, it, it almost becomes mechanical. You know, the, if you're a decent copper, you know what to do. If you're a good sergeant, you know what to do. Detectives, you know, we, we'd we all have like a little huddle when the yeah. detectives would show up and a lieutenant would show up. And it's, oh, here's the briefing. And I, w- I made sure I had everything squared away. Okay, here's your victim. Here's his, we call them B of I numbers, Bureau of, Bureau of Identification. He's been arrested seven times for drug and gun offenses. You know, I'd have my yeah. copper do their homework and, you know, run this guy okay he's got two open warrants well not anymore because he's dead (laughs) and um you know this is the last time he had police contact yeah he was on probation or whatever you know they'll give you the rundown 
And it's like, okay, according to the caller, you know, you always want to get the caller, the first person who called 911. They're usually a halfway decent witness. They're sitting in that squad over there. They have two warrants. They've been arrested three times, you know, whatever you give, you give everybody the meat and potatoes of the investigation. You know, there's a gun in the bushes over there. He's got five holes in his chest. You know, he's laying in the grass over there. And at the time all this happened, maybe two cousins were over and, you know, whatever, you know, and here you go. Here's all the information. And usually the, the sergeant or lieutenant's going to be like, okay, you know, Hey, Pat, Rick, you know, you take the scene, you know, Fred start interviewing these people, you know, they'd start. And it was funny because some of them enjoyed doing things more than others. You know, some, some of the detectives loved, you know, like diagramming the scene. They really got into it. They loved it. You know, they loved getting that little wheel out and measuring everything, you know, (laughs) and all that good stuff. Now, depending on the department, like your CSI people, how many would show up to like a regular homicide and how many detectives would show up? What, what would it look like? When I first started working as a detective, our uh, evidence techs would come out. You're usually got one or two at most. Sure. Same with us. And pretty much they did was snap a couple of photos and take blood standards. Um, this was uh, in the days before OJ. Okay. Um, and before the advent of DNA. So pretty much, you know, they kind of, I've had, I've had evidence texts on homicide scenes do this, you know, they're, they're kind of scanning the house. They go, now nah, we're not going to find any fingerprints. And they walk out. <laughs> oh God. It's okay. like, that, that was the old days. Okay. But of course, as time went on, especially OJ changed everything. Sure. Changed everything. And they got much more professional. By the time I had become a Lieutenant, we had a good evidence recovery team. And, I got to think four or five guys would come out four or five people. would. So come out. by evidence recovery team, what would that be? Uh, you'd have your fingerprint technician. You'd have, uh, um, what, well, say, say it's a big scene. Mm-hmm. They're going to set up a staging area. Sure. They're going to, uh, assign one guy. He's going to bag and tag everything. He's going to be the guy inventory as the evidence came out. You're going to have a couple other guys, um, who are, uh, doing fingerprints. You're going to have, um, we're going to do look for latents. Then you're going to have a uh, um, maybe those same guys, probably not. You're going to have another couple guys looking for DNA. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're talking blood, saliva. Check the toilets for urine and right. feces. Um, the whole gamut, and uh, and you're going to have your photographer and videographers who are going to be there. So if it's a big important scene, now if it's like I said, if it's your run of the mill gangbanger found dead on the corner, mm-hmm. they're not going to bring that whole team out. They're, okay. they're, they're, you know, it's, it's, it's manpower, it's uh, urgency, it's, sure. um, uh, they're, they're not they're, You're going to, you're going to have a couple, two, three at the most come out. Okay. Now where I worked, the detectives would actually do, you know, you said bag and tag, you know, they're the ones who would work with the CSI person, the evidence tech. And it's like, okay, first off, you know, you take pictures of everything you know, overalls. And then, you know, you have the little tents with the numbers on them and everything is documented by photograph. And there's a detective that's going to be, he's got a steno pad out and he's documenting where, you know, this was found, et cetera. But it wasn't the evidence tech that would actually put it in a bag and inventory it later. It would be the detective. 
Um, for us, it was all the evidence recovery team people. Okay, gotcha. Um, and when they first were beginning that team, there was kind of a, a little friction there because those people, evidence recovery team people, wanted to be on their own. They wanted everybody out, get the detectives out, everybody out. Oh, and the detectives okay. were like, no, we want to be there with you because... This is my scene. I have to yeah, be able to articulate this. Scene, yeah. but I've, I'm an experienced homicide detective. I might want something that you don't think is important, but mm -hmm. I do. Right. Um, you might, I might see something that you don't. Um, so eventually they came out where it's like, okay, but you gotta, <laughs> you gotta suit up, you know, you gotta put the Kevlar suit on the, or rather the, uh, Tyvek suit. Right. And, uh, and you know, some of the, the footies and all that, like that. But, <laughs> but they did it. <laughs> sure. That's interesting. Now were these evidence recovery techs, were they sworn police officers or? Yes. yes. Okay. All sworn. Do you know if that's the way it is now? No, I don't. You know, I just tried getting a hold of my friend, the old chief of detectives, uh, and ask him what they're doing these days. And, yeah. uh, and, uh, he hasn't gotten back to me. Okay. But I, I would assume that it's still the same way. I mean, a lot of people are heading towards civilianizing that. Yes. Especially down in Florida here. Um, and it, it seems to work out, but it depends on the amount of training you get. Correct. You know? It depends how serious the department is about it. Yeah. I've got a buddy that is a detective out West. I'll just say out West and they're like CSI people or whatever you want to call them are mostly college grads. They're all civilians. They give them a vest and if they want a gun, they have to go through the training to get a gun. And he said, they're so excited about the job. They think it's like the coolest thing ever. He says, they always get DNA. They always get fingerprints. He said, we're before you had these old salty cops yeah. that were evidence techs. And they're like, no, nah, there's nothing here. You know, like yeah. what you were talking yeah. about. And these guys, yeah. they can't wait to go. You know, it, it's funny because, you know, it's like every other job you'd have some that were superstars that man, how did they find a fingerprint on that? And then there's other ones that barely even looked at it. It's like, yeah, nothing here. Yeah. yeah. So the times they are changing, there is no doubt when it comes <laughs> to that. I'm sure the first thing they tell them when they, when they decide to go into that career is you're not going to be driving a Ferrari. You're not going to be wearing <laughs> Armani suits yeah. uh, and, or high heels. Uh, right. And Gucci purses to the scenes. Yeah, that <laughs> you're not is, gonna be making that much money. No, no, you will not. They're not <laughs> unless you're independently wealthy. You're not. You're not doing that. Well, and that's the thing. You know, he he told me he said they pay him less than the coppers because they're not sworn, and but they enjoy doing it and they, they get a big kick out of it and they went to college for it. So hey, God bless them. You know, if they if they enjoy doing it and they're doing a good job, why not? Enthusiasm is great. Yes, yes, it is. All right. So say you were at that homicide you know, it's gangster one kills gangster two, et cetera. How long would you be on the scene? I know it's all situational, but like an average, uh, a couple hours, I'd say two hours minimum. Yeah. Depending on how, how involved the scene is. Right. Um, if, if we're, if we're really getting any good leads, uh, if we're recovering any kind of decent evidence, um, 
If not, we might be less than 45 minutes before wow. the, the wagon comes along and removes that body. Now, that, like I said, that was on the rough and tumble west side when it was like a mash unit. You're moving on quick. You're, doing a, you're getting somebody out there to help you do a canvas. Mm-hmm. Uh, but nobody ever saw anything, you know? Right. So, so it, it's tough. Those are, those are really tough homicides uh, to work. Do you know what the clearance rate was for the department? Uh, in back in area four, when I was there, our clearance rate was in the eighties. Oh, that's very good or or better. Yeah. We were really good. Now I'm being told it's in the 30% range. You know what? That is something that, again, this is not a show about politics, but since things have changed quite a bit, clearance rates for homicides and what we're talking about is it's a clearance. So the detective has found the person who was shot and killed or ran over or whatever, stabbed, you know, person number one, that clears the crime. Now, that doesn't mean that you might have a district attorney that doesn't choose to prosecute said crime. Or, you know, if they're found not guilty, that that has nothing to do with that. It's just a clearance is you've cleared the crime. You've cleared it. So. Our department was in the 80, 90 percentile, and I've been gone for a year and a half now. In the last maybe three or four years that I was there, I think it was around the same numbers. I I don't think they were breaking 50 percent. Wow. Yeah. You know, that's and that's a byproduct of the times that, you know, again, politics and all the rest. That's what you get. So, yeah, absolutely. That's 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 that. But anyways. okay, so. You know, the days of, you know, a, a common trope is, yeah, he was at the homicide scene for like three days. And I'm like, what? I'm like, <laughs> no, he wasn't. Yeah, because, you know, yeah. when I, yeah. I'm sure in Chicago, like when you were a newer copper, I would assume you started the night because most of us started at night. I started midnight to eight in the morning. Yeah. You know, you'd start out the night, 50, 60, 70 assignments in the hole. That's how many people were waiting for you to show up. Yes. And yeah, same Chicago thing. same thing. Same thing. Absolutely same thing. Worse now, I hear. Yeah. Every night you're behind the eight ball. When you walk yeah. in the door, you're like, okay, you know, but <laughs> and obviously it goes by priority. If somebody's shot and bleeding, you're yeah. gonna go to that other than the five hour barking dog call. Yeah. You know, that kind of um, thing. One thing when I first came on the job back in seventy seven, um, there was a big hiring um push going on back then they hired a lot of new police officers mm-hmm. um off that test where twenty thousand people took it wow. um because the city had been down for a long time i guess they got federal money and they were hiring okay and so when i went into the 19th district as a fresh-faced <laughs> recruit um there were probably six or seven recruits along with me there's new police officers mm-hmm. there were quite a few of us and there were a couple there who had just gotten off probation already who were in the class or two before us in the academy so there was a real influx of young blood and a lot of guys and girls who really wanted to do the work sure so um you know they'd race from call to call to call and though we were always backed up we we always got help there was always help Gotcha. Now let's change gears a little bit here. You know, Chicago PD has, it's iconic. You know, when you think of Chicago PD, there's a certain swagger 
and you know the blue lights instead of blue and red lights on top of the squad car. I don't know if there's a swagger anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and kind of the checkerboard hat, you know, the blue and white kind of checkerboard and the the five point star. It, when you think of you know Chicago PD, is there any like traditions or lingo that's kind of specific towards the Chicago PD that you can think of? Yeah, um, the lingo right off the bat, like you mentioned, it's the five point star. One thing that's going to set off any Chicago police officer or anybody who's been in a Chicago police family is it's not a badge. It's a star. We don't call it a badge. If you call it a badge in your book or in your screenplay, you're wrong. It's a star. Um, same thing, like I mentioned, districts, not precincts, it's districts. Mm-hmm. And I've seen that hundreds of times in, in books where they get that wrong. Right. Um, a couple other things. We don't use the traditional 10 code. Uh, a lot of police departments used that, that traditional 10 code. We pretty much had only three 10 codes we used. Uh, 10-4 was an acknowledgement by a, a two-man car. 10-99 was an acknowledgement by a one-man car. And 10-1 was officer needs assistance, come running. That's it. Those are the only 10 codes I remember using. We had our own um, system uh, uh, where there were, series of numbers and accompanying letters were like a 19 Paul was disturbance, uh, other service rendered. It was kind of like a, I give it a 19 Paul. I'm out of there. You know, I, I, <laughs> we call that a C10 where I work yeah. advised. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, okay, you didn't arrest somebody yeah. and there was no citations issued and there's yeah. no follow up that's needed. Like, yeah, we advise. You know it. what's going on, squad. Don't worry. Right. <laughs> yeah, and and that's what we would call our dispatchers, squad. If mm-hmm. you're if you're talking to the dispatcher, you're calling them squad. Um. Uh. Geez, what else? I don't know. Um. Th- th- those are the only things that really frost me. <laughs> right, and then yeah, okay, right. most districts have temporary holding facilities they have jail cells correct yeah they have jail cells yeah now did you call that like was there a central lockup lock did you call it a lockup lock okay i was lockup uh and we all had a front desk that was a desk should be a desk sergeant or an asking desk sergeant at that desk you never saw the watch commander nobody ever sees the watch commander <laughs> well it's funny you mentioned that because i mean we always had a desk sergeant working but it was rarely a sergeant it was usually a yeah. police officer filling in as a desk yeah. sergeant and they more or less ran the front office. Yeah. Same now, thing with us. Yeah. And as far as a watch commander goes, we called them super sergeants because oh. <laughs> they, they, they went around the city. They would have to go to every district every night oh. and find out what's going on. You know, as far as, okay, did you have any homicides, sexual assaults, any major crimes? Um, any personnel things like any person, any officer get hurt or anything like that. They'll also check the schedule to make sure you're at staffing. We had certain minimums we had to keep, yeah. you know, like say late shift, you have to have 20 people working, you know, just for a number. And if there's 18 working, he's going to want to know why, mm-hmm. you know, so you have to answer to that. And the watch commander, I remember <laughs> they worked, we call them power hours. They'd work like eight to, eight at night till four in the morning or seven at night till three in the morning. And I had a captain that was the acting watch commander. And he was probably one of the funniest guys I've ever worked with. And he came up to me one time. He said, Patrick, I said, I got a secret. I'm like, yes, sir. 
He said, I was at a double homicide. Two pimps killed each other. It was just so poetic. They they actually shot each other at the same time and killed each other. <laughs> and, you know, here comes this watch commander and he walks up and he's like, ah, the air is a little cleaner in the city of Milwaukee tonight, isn't it, Patrick? And I'm like, yes, sir. Yes, it is. Yeah. And he's just like, you know, I don't tell anybody this, but I pissed off the chief. And he made me the acting watch commander as punishment. He said, this is the best job I've ever had. I get to go around, see if you guys need anything. He, he had no malice in his heart at all. All yeah. he wanted to do was help people out. He was just that guy. And he wanted to help the cops and he wanted to help the citizens. He was just that guy. He was just that nice. And he pissed off the chief. So the chief banished him to, to nights. You know, you're the watch commander. He says, I, I literally write one report at the end of the shift. That's it. And he said, it isn't a long one. Yeah. And he says, I get to go around. I get to see, I get to hang out with guys like you, you know, we shoot the shit, you know, I go get dinner and I get paid a lot of money. He says, yeah, just don't tell him that I like it. Okay. <laughs> like, yes, sir. Well, I'm on it. In our districts, generally watch commanders were captains. They'd mm-hmm. have three per district, three captains per district wow. and okay. a commander over him. Um, but as time went on and those, you know, through attrition, they didn't replace those jobs because they were expensive. You had lieutenants being the watch commanders. You always had to have a lieutenant okay, on every watch working. So at the very least, you had a lieutenant as the watch commander. Now, citywide, we had what was called the assistant deputy superintendent, the street deputy. There was all, and all exempt ranks would take turns doing this over the month. And um, they pretty much stayed on the street all night long, and whenever a homicide or especially a police-involved shooting happened, oh, sure. they, they'd respond, and they'd yep. have to write a report on it. But they were given a driver. They could pick whoever they Ooh. wanted to be their driver. Okay. And uh, it was a pretty sweet job. And these are the guys I remember as a detective um, being involved in police-involved shootings or a, a you know, maybe – Police officer fired shots, but didn't hit anything, mm-hmm. you know, a little, little less to worry about. Right. Or some homicides, they'd come to the scene and they'd call me over. Detective, come on over here. Okay, sir, let me fill you in. He goes, no, don't say a word. He says, when you've got it all down, then tell me. He says, well, I think I can give it to you now, boss. No, 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 no. <laughs> I'm going to go for coffee. You make sure you get it all straightened out. And then you tell me. And then he leaves. And it's like, what the heck? It's like, what does he think I'm doing here? I, I'm, I'm doing a puppet show or something where I've got to pull all the right strings. <laughs> but those were funny. the old, the old guard, you know, they don't right. tell me anything that I want to hear. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's funny. Now do Chicago coppers still have to live in Chicago? Yes, they residency? do. And it's still wow. a moment of contention. And that'll never change, I don't think. Wow. Um, See, um, and I didn't mind it so much, you know. And I'll tell you what, if if they do change it someday, there will be an exodus from the city. But what do they think is going to happen to their property um, values? When you've got all these cappers and firemen fleeing the city, you think who's going to be buying your houses? (laughs) Right. You know, it happened to us. I was 20 years into my career and it was more or less a pissing contest between the mayor and the governor. 
and the governor snuck it in a budget bill. Wow. And, you know, the mayor was just furious about the whole thing. And then the governor said, you know what? Why don't you make your city desirable enough where these guys want to live there? Why don't you do that? Yeah. yeah and of course, that was a huge whoop de woo But <laughs> there wasn't a mass exodus. I mean, some of us moved. And it was funny because a year before that, I was in the supervisor's union because I was a sergeant. And we offered the first 20 years, we will live in the city. And then anything after that, I can live wherever I want to live. So you get 20 years out of us. Yeah. And that seems reasonable. (laughs) The mayor and all, you know, councilmen and whoever else is just like, oh, no, it's never going to pass. So we're not going to give it to you. All right. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha. So no foresight on that one. But anyways, um, anything else you can think of Chicago-wise that's uh, unique to the, to the department? Like we talked about earlier, that hierarchy. We call our, our big boss, he's not a chief, he's the superintendent. Right. Um, they'll get that wrong a lot, too. Um, geez. What else? I, I, you what know, do you call your squad cars? Squad rolls. Well, the, no, let me take that back. The squad roll was the paddy wagon. A squad roll is the paddy wagon. Um, just a squad car. You know, we call okay. them blue and whites or squad cars. There's not a lot of, you know, lingo associated with that. Um, half the time, it's just like, you know, go, go out to the car and get, get my cup of coffee. <laughs> right. So did you call them paddy wagons? Uh, sometimes you call them paddy wagons. When you're okay. on the air, you'd call them a squad roll. A squad so roll. Yeah, you'd, you'd tell the dispatcher, uh, you know, I, I, I got one, uh, go to central detention, send me to squad roll. Oh, you know, interesting. Okay. Yeah, yeah we we just would or say, hey, wagon. I need a wagon. Of, yeah, yeah uh, I need a wagon. wagon at my location. Yeah. I know some people yeah. took offense to paddy wagon. They thought it was derogatory towards Irish people. I'm as Irish as they come, and I never was offended by that. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, whatever. I don't think I associated it with that until somebody told me probably 15 years into my career about that. <laughs> okay. So TV and movie. Oh, you know what? We had some questions from the Facebook group. Let oh, me okay. go over to there and let's do that here. Okay. Anita Rogers is asking, I'd be curious to know if there is anything that distinguishes Chicago PD from other PDs in the country, such as special investigations or elite units. Uh, Let's see here. Being known for a particular type of crime detection or maybe quirky things about the department. Those little known ideas or details that writers look for in their works. We covered um, some of that, but anything else you can think of? Yeah, this, this, yeah, this kind of goes back to what we were talking about, the, the star versus badge, mm-hmm. things like that. Also, in New York, um, they use the term rabbi, meaning you've got somebody looking out for you in the department. You're gonna, if you've got a rabbi, you might move up the, the promotional ladder really quick. You know, you've got, you've got your guy mm-hmm. and, and in Chicago. It was having a phone call. It was having, um, you know, we never called him a rabbi. I know that's a real New York term. Yeah. Um, it was pretty much your guy. He's got a phone call. You know, he's got somebody. 
Um, he's, or they call, he's got an uncle. It wouldn't necessarily be his uncle. Okay. You can say, yeah, he's got an uncle or he's got a father-in-law, you know, looking out for him. Mm-hmm. Um, one of those things. Then uh, specialized units, you know, they have a SWAT team now. And okay. we've had it for years, but it was only some years ago that they used that acronym SWAT, that they changed it to that. It used to be the HBT team. It was the hostage barricade, barricaded terrorist team. Oh, okay. It's basically the same thing. And I, yeah. and I worked on that for a little while. Okay. Um, which was real fun because you get all that training, like you said. Um, but we, they, it wasn't a dedicated unit. In other words, you were working your normal assignment, whatever your job was. I was as a detective. But if uh, an incident happened where they needed you out, they'd make a phone call and you've got to go. Gotcha. Whatever you're doing, you could be on a homicide scene. Yeah. You're leaving the homicide scene, and you're going to the to the uh, incident. Gotcha. Okay. Um, I I forgot what TV show it was. They were talking about attack sergeant. Do you have? Oh, what tactical is that? teams. Yeah. What is that? Um, yeah, we called them tack teams, uh, and uh, tack guys uh, who are assigned to the tactical team. And what the tactical team is within the district in patrol. You've got your regular uniform patrolman. Well, the district commander um, would have a specialized unit made up of patrolmen from his district. Um, there were three teams of uh, eight to ten people, each with a sergeant and a lieutenant, um, and they called it the tactical team. It was a plainclothes, high-arrest um, team uh, within the district. Okay. We, we but, called ours like AGUs, anti-gang units. Yeah. Um, for a while, they, they included gangs in that. Uh, they broke up uh, the citywide gang unit, and they sent them all to districts, and they, they formed gang teams okay. uh, to work in concert with the TAC teams, the tactical teams. Um, but it was uh, real good. Basically, most commanders used them uh, to police vice in their, in their districts. Mm. narcotics prostitution gambling right but there were also those commanders who were like i don't want you doing that i don't want you concentrating on vice because if you don't make a vice arrest there is no vice crime in my district oh okay gotcha. because they're not reported crimes sure you you only have a narcotics incident a narcotics stat if you arrest somebody for narcotics yeah that's all proactive policing yeah yeah. yeah. So there were a lot of district commanders who didn't want them doing that. Just go out and make felony arrests. Go okay. go find those burglars. Um, <laughs> go find the robbers. He's like, yeah, yeah, okay. But the detective division, we love those guys. We use them a lot. Okay. Because it would be like, okay, we're looking for pookie slim guys. We need to talk to him on this homicide. Don't know if he did it, so you can't arrest him. Right. But we really need to talk to him. Sure. And so you tell that to the tech team, and bam, they'd go out and scoop him up and bring him right to you. Wow. Yeah, we for something like that, we would put out an IA, which would be an investigative alert. It's like, yeah. okay, you know what? Rick, according to witnesses, was at this homicide. We don't know. He's more of a person of interest. We don't have enough probable cause to arrest him, but we would like to have a conversation with Rick about yeah. this. So it would pop up when you'd run somebody. And nine out of 10 times, the person had a warrant anyways. Yeah. So they're under arrest anyways. So it's like, okay, it's a minor warrant that maybe if it was a busy night, 
and you know the warrant for not paying the you know OAS like operating after suspension or something like that. You know, it's like we're not going to worry about that yeah. tonight. But if you have an IA, we are going to worry about that, and you are going to go to jail, and a detective is going to come talk to you while you're in jail. Yeah. Or if it was it wasn't too busy, a detective might come out to the scene where you have this guy jacked up. We we call it you know jacking somebody up, you know talking to somebody. Yeah. And, you know, it's like, OK, especially if they're very interested in that case, you know, you could see like you could take the detective's temperature if they were out there like in five minutes. It's like, oh, OK, <laughs> you really want to talk to this guy. It's like, all <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Yeah. And depending on the conversation, he might be going voluntarily downtown for a conversation that's going to be recorded or they're going to be going in handcuffs or they right. just let go. of them. It all depends. We had those formal investigative alerts, too. We call them stop orders, but mm-hmm. formally they were investigative alerts. And, yeah, they went into a computer system. So, yep. you know, anybody stopping this guy and running his name, they, they're going to find him. But informally, we like to use the tag teams a lot. Gotcha. You know, it's it's um, kind of off the books. You know? Right, right. <laughs> Understood. And if an arrest came from it, an arrest came from it, tag team got the credit. Perfect. We didn't operate on arrests in the detective division. We didn't care about that. We cared about clear-ups. Right. That's it. You wanted to clear the crimes. Yeah. Yep. Understood. All right. Let's go back. Uh, who else has a question here? Uh, Robin Carden asks, I have one. If a person in Chicago felt she was being stalked, how would she approach the police? What would What would she ask for and what would be the procedure to get it? What evidence would she need to be to present it's different in every state thank you so much um well if i remember the stalking statute in illinois um pretty much you have to have <clears throat> two incidents um which basically make you feel threatened this person's followed you uh at least two times and they've either threatened you uh or caused you to feel threatened in some way um that's all you need so you you'd call nine one one. And uh, they'd send a car out and they'd take a report. Uh, Detectives would follow up on that. And um, generally, a lot of those are domestic related. Sure. So um, you're going to get a detective um, bringing the uh, victim into court and getting a restraining order. Sure. Um, Basically, that's what is going on there. Um, I, you know, I'm sure out in Hollywood, there's a lot different with those stars out there. I'm sure they're getting stalked all the time. Oh, I'm sure. So, but uh, <laughs> I haven't had a lot of experience with the stalking. Mm-hmm. Um, the SVU handled those. Okay, gotcha. Uh, by us. All right. And, uh, but uh, uh, yeah, basically, that that's about it. All right. Okay, uh, let's see here. So, <laughs> Anita Rogers is asking about the Chicago PD TV series. Anywhere near accurate? Never seen it at all. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I haven't paid attention or watched a lot of cop shows. I mean, back in the day, uh, I watched Hill Street Blues a little bit, mm-hmm. but even that got tiring. Um, it was more of a soap opera than anything sure. else. Um it was good at, be- at the beginning, then it got kind of silly <laughs> yeah, towards the end. Yeah. yeah. Jumped and the I, shark. I, I just get the feeling that's what Chicago PD is about. Oh, it's God, yes. So proper. So I don't watch it. I think probably the best representation of the police, now you know what's coming, that I've seen on TV. Number one is Barney Miller. That's going to be the winner. Love Barney Miller. Number two is Bash. Okay. That is a great series. Great series and a great series of books. But 
the author of the books, Michael Conley, he just about lives with those coppers out in LA with those detectives. Sure. Um, he's, he's with them all the time. So he really gets the feel for what they do, what they go through. And, uh, and he puts it on paper really well. Okay. And the, the TV show is a real fair representation of his books. All right. Outstanding. Okay. Let's see here. Fallon Reigns asks, this is a two-part question. Gangs, how many are there? How far do they reach? <laughs> how many blacks are there in the city of Chicago? <laughs> now, I'm sure you have the same experience. A lot of the gangs in Milwaukee are the same as the gangs in Chicago. Yes. Uh, you know, you had two main factions that was kind of somehow born in the prison system where you have folks and people. People, yeah. And each gang fell within under one of those two umbrellas. And they were mortal enemies. And uh, so you had uh, um, vice lords, gangster disciples, <laughs> Uh, two six boys, Latin kings, you know all the big days, all the big hits, you know. Yep. Um, and it was all about territory for drug sales. Um, now though, and things have drastically changed since I left the job. I talked to uh, coppers, and it's like there's a different gang faction on every block. Yep. And and they're dealing drugs. It's it's different. They just can't keep up with it anymore. It's it's you know like thirty insane, dirty, rotten son of a bitch and vice lords who are really not insane, but conservative. <laughs> you know, it's like, that's their name. It's like, yeah. come on. It's like on every other black. Um, so, well, it used to be, you know, like, okay, blue and red are the colors. Yeah. You know, they're very proud of them. Or black you know, and gold. Yeah. Black and gold is what the Latin Kings would have. And now it, for the most part, they don't advertise like they used to. Maybe they're getting a little smarter. I don't know, but yeah. you know, it's, it's the two, three guys, it's the Burleigh boys, it's the Holton whatever's and the audience. And it's very, it's not as organized as it was right. by it's, us. Like it's the not hard, about the gang anymore. It's about their narcotics. In the correct. Correct. It, it has changed dramatically. When I first came on, they were building Rico cases on Latin Kings, Spanish Cobras, the, especially the Hispanic gangs on the south side of Milwaukee, they were building some really good Rico quick, um, cases, and they put it was the FBI, it was well, it was the alphabet soup of you know yeah. the feds w- along with the Milwaukee Police Department. They did a fantastic job, but it left a vacuum in narcotic sales. So guess what happened? All the North Siders <laughs> came down and formed their own little gangs and are slinging dope. So nothing really changed. It's just that the old style gangs were a lot more organized and a lot more vengeful. I mean, you, you better not, um, yeah, cross them and you know, they will follow you home. They will kill you, their family, you know, your cat, your bird, your whatever. I mean, there's, there's no bones about it. It's a lot different now. Yeah. And, And that's why the murder rates are so high. Yep. You know, Absolutely. So CPL concealed pistol license. Is there a way to get one in Illinois, especially for personal protection in gang infested areas of the city? Um, I think I read this one online. I think the writer is from Michigan and she's looking to get a, yep. Looking to get a uh, concealed carry in Illinois. She can Mm. forget about that. Um, There is no reciprocity with Illinois. They will not honor any other States concealed carry licenses. Um, 
They do allow only five other states um, to apply for a concealed carry license in Illinois. I think it's like Texas, Oklahoma, Idaho, one or two others. Hmm. Um, but being from Michigan, no, she's out of luck. She will not get a concealed carry license in Illinois. Okay. Yeah. Being a retired copper, I have the HR 218. So, you know, folks live in Chicago, so I carry my gun when I go down right. there. So, you know, I'm good that way, but yeah, my CCW, you know, like my friend that has a CCW, that's not going to work in Chicago. You have to have a, what is an FIOD card or FOID? What FOID. Is yeah. Yeah. Just to own a, a firearm. Yeah. Which is, I'm surprised nobody's taken that to court yet. Yeah, well, you know, the funny part is, you know, bad guys don't care about that stuff. No. They don't care about CCWs. They don't care about FOIDs or <laughs> ABCs or whatever. No. They just they just no. go doing illegal shit. But anyway, the thing that's hurting them the most is the ammunition shortage. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it ain't cheap. That's for sure. Yeah. There's no doubt about it. If you can find it. Uh, Nick Contreras asks, how do you prioritize all the homicides and shootings that occur on a weekly basis? And with that is the low solve rate, which is based more than on sheer quantity of shootings and qu quality of work frustrating. Um, geez, you know what? I, I use Nick a lot when, mm -hmm. I, when I'm reading your, uh, your Facebook page, because I think, I believe he's still working. He's, yeah, he's, he is. He is. He is and, a working uh, detective. He's just got some great answers and stuff like he that. Does. So I want to be really perfect when I'm answering <laughs> this question for him. Prioritizing the homicides. There was, um, only if there was a real heater case, that's what they call them in Chicago, you know, like real high profile heater case. Mm -hmm. Um, there was no prioritization of homicides. We had, you know, maybe you've got 10 homicide teams working. They each get their homicides. We yep. had, a we had a lineup like a baseball lineup. Okay. Who's up today? Who's up first? Okay. You guys are just back from your days off. So you get the first thing that comes in. Sure. And, and that's how they went. And, uh, uh, unless it was a heater, then it's all hands on deck. Yeah. You know, like Milwaukee, same thing. You know, they have their way of trying to disperse it and making it fair amongst the detectives. So you're not burning them out. But, you know, the little kid, you know, the four or five year old kid that's on grandpa's lap watching, you know, uh, cartoons that catches a stray bullet to the head. Yeah. You better believe that's going to get solved and it's oh, going to yeah. get solved very Absolutely. quickly. There's that is a all hands on deck kind of situation. Yes, absolutely. Rather than two gangsters that are fighting over, you know, a block. Yeah. You know, that put bullets in each other. You know, that's a whole lot different. Oh, yeah, absolutely. All absolutely. right. I think that's pretty much the heart Didn't of it there. Another part. I, I don't want to offend Nick. Here. Oh, uh, let's see here. <laughs> um, Nick, let's see. And with that is the low solve rate, which is based more on the sheer quantity of shootings and quality of work. Frustrating. I, again, I've been out of it for 15 years, so I don't know if the quantity has anything to do with it because we had just as much, if not more, in the early 90s. Oh, yeah. Um, the, the crack wars? Oh, my yeah, Lord. The crack wars. And so, so I don't know if it's the quantity. I, I would say no, it's not the quantity. I think it's um, a lot, has a lot to do with the politics mm. of the city and what's been going on across the country. Um, where you're not getting a lot of backup and support. And I don't know too many detectives, even back then when I was working, who would put their careers and their freedom on the line um, uh, for some 
idiot you got sitting in the room uh, who says, no, I want a lawyer. Well, you're not going to press that issue. You know, in the right. past, oh, we absolutely. might have pressed that issue and said, well, okay, we'll get you a lawyer. But, uh, you know, you know, a lot of the old tricks. But, you know, your buddy in the other room, he's telling up. well, no, I can't talk to you. You don't want to talk to me anymore. Right. Well, boom, now you got him. Now he goes, yep. oh, uh, what did he say? <laughs> you know, well, I'm only getting one side of the story. Yeah. So if you don't want <laughs> to give me your side, that's fine. You know, uh, yeah, let me get that lawyer for you right now. You know, so these days, I don't know too many detectives who are willing to go that extra step. Um, and you can't blame them. Yeah, that's unfortunate, but it's the world that we live in. All right. Uh, let's see here. That's it for the Facebook questions, man. We've been at this for a while, Rick, and I really appreciate your time. Oh, I'm having a great time. Oh, good. I think we're going to have to do this again. If we that's... had a couple of beers in front of us. This is, <laughs> <laughs> this well, be a... <laughs> you know what? I have a crystal ball, which is doubles <laughs> as my Chicago bears uh, oh, mug yeah. that I busted out for this. Um <laughs> And I foresee us having beers one night and solving world problems. I don't know if you oh, yeah. smoke. That'd I don't know if you smoke cigars, but you know, I'll be happy to bring you. Not one. anymore. I, I, no more smoking. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> I'm still gotcha. chewing Nicorette. Okay, gotcha. You're also a writer. Tell me a little bit about your books. Uh, okay, I'm. You know, I I've always kind of had this bug in me, um, and it really started gnawing at me about 20 years ago. And I started writing back then, but I quickly realized that I really sucked at it and um, <laughs> that I better learn more about the craft okay. um, to get good. And so that's what I did. I kind of concentrated. I took classes. Mm -hmm. uh, I read as many books as I could. And a lot of the information I really took to heart, like you've got to read everything you can get your hands on, especially sure. in the genre you want to write yep. in. Absolutely. And so I, I, I did all that. And then you got to keep writing. You got to write, you got to write, you got to yep. write. And I did. And then I got frustrated. I thought to myself, like every writer does, my stuff sucks. This is just terrible. So I put it aside. Mm -hmm. And then uh, for probably three or four years, I, I just put it aside. I didn't think about it. I had a half finished novel. And uh, next thing I know, I'm on Facebook and I see my friend has published a novel. He's another copper. I was a yeah. lieutenant with him. He was, uh, we worked together as sergeants. He published a novel. I'm like, son of a bitch. Well, I, I call him up. I said, Bob, what, how, how did you do this? What, what, yeah. what did you do? He goes, oh, well, you know, I've got another friend who wrote a book. And I figured, well, if he can do it, I can do it. So, <laughs> so he, writes, <laughs> he writes science fiction, though. Okay. And he wrote uh, science fiction. I thought, wow, this is great. He says, who's your publisher? He goes, well, I did it myself. I'm, I'm an indie uh, yeah. author. I, I went on Amazon and I did it. I said, you're kidding. They can do that. I thought I had to, you know, right. Go through all the rigmarole. So, it, you know, I have to say in the spirit of competition, I thought, well, if he can do it, I can do it. Sure. <laughs> you know, so I pulled out my novel, I finished it and I, I published it on Amazon and uh, it kind of went from there. I've published uh, uh, two more books since then and a collection of short stories that's only available in ebook uh, mm -hmm. format. But um, I still consider myself a real novice indie writer. Okay. Um, I think there are so many people will tell you, hey, you got to throw out your first million pages of writing, you know, and, and maybe then you'll be a good writer. And that's true to some degree. You know, you've really got to learn the craft. You've, you've got right. to devote time to it and, um, and practice it. And 
that's what I think, think I'm still doing. In the meantime, mm-hmm. though, I'm publishing these things I wrote. I'm, I'm self-publishing because I enjoy it. Good. Um, and uh, I know I'm not going to be a millionaire. Uh, in fact, I'm only about a hundred air <laughs> on, <laughs> on this thing. Um, but uh, it's fun. I enjoy it. I'm going to keep doing it. What kind of books are you writing? What are they called? Um, I've, I've never gone that route where you see so many coppers do, hey, this was my life as a police officer. Mm-hmm. And here's all the cool stories I have, all the war stories I have. I didn't do that. I always wanted to write novels. And I wrote um, some uh, crime thrillers. Okay. Um, um, I, I have to say kind of in the, in the style, not in the style, but in the same way that Michael Conley does. I've got a, except my, my protagonist, my hero, he's a retired Chicago copper. Actually, he got forced off the job mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and uh, kind of was kind of drifting around, not really knowing what to do and kind of fell into an investigation mm-hmm. um, that no one else wanted to take up. And then it just, the two, two books followed after that. Okay. And, uh, it's, it's great. I just, I just love writing. Um, people ask, people tell me and they ask me, well, they say you got to write every day. Do you write every day? Yes, I do. But not on paper. Sure. A lot of writing gets done in your head. Mm-hmm. Um, at least for me, you know, okay. I, I could be driving the car and my wife will be talking to me. She goes, Hey, are you listening to me? I said, no, I'm sorry. I, I was writing, you know, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm going I'm through a scene right now, honey. It's, it's yeah. not you. Yeah. So, you know, um, what was the question? <laughs> no, I'm just asking you about your writing career and, you know, the, the name of the books and you know, okay, all that first, kind of stuff. The first book uh, is The Pain Game. And the basic premise um, is based on the, uh, the oxy clinics, you know, the uh, oxycodone uh, mm-hmm. uh, um, pain clinics that were going on. They were really big down here um, for a long time in Florida. And uh, it's, it's loosely based on that. And, um, uh, the second one, um, is the same hero, the same protagonist, um, takes a job as an insurance investigator because his new girlfriend says, you got to get a job. (laughs) 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 You can't keep living off me. So, uh, he, uh, he winds up stumbling across a body in the middle of the state. Okay. And then, uh, the third one is as a result of that second book, he's being, he and his girlfriend are being pursued by a vengeful uh, guy that got away in the in the okay. book previous to that. Gotcha. And they wind up in Chicago. Uh, they're back in Chicago. Outstanding. End up in Chicago. So. Very good. So all these books are available on Amazon. Yes, they are. Okay. Uh, I'll put links in the show notes. Just look for my author page, Richard Rybicki. Okay. Yeah, I'll put I'll put yeah. links in there in the show notes. All right. Oh, thanks. Appreciate it. So people can find you on Amazon, your author page, any, anywhere else they could find you? Uh, no, that's probably, well, uh, yes. On Facebook, uh, I have a Sam Laska Crime Thrillers page on uh, okay. on Facebook. So that's good. it, Sam Laska Crime Thrillers. All right, very good. Again, thank you so much for all of your time. This is this is probably one of the longest interviews I've done, and I feel like we could keep on talking for a few more hours easily. No, thank you. I really enjoyed this. My guest on the show today was author and retired Chicago Police Department Lieutenant Richard Rybecki. Thank you, Richard, for sharing your experiences with the real Chicago PD with us. 
Well, that wraps up another episode of the Cops and Writers Podcast. If you haven't done so yet, could you please take a minute and rate and review the show on Stitcher or Apple Podcasts? If you have already, thank you. As always, thank you for all of your support, and, of course, let's be careful out there. Yeah.